Welcome. It's great to have you here with us. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders here at Liberty Church. Now, if this is your first time here, then, well, first of all, well done for making it. Uh, we know that walking into a building like this with a room full of people you don't know can be a very daunting experience. Um, but we're really grateful that you're here. Uh, and we really hope that you feel at home this morning with us because the church um, isn't about a building, it's about the people of God who are supposed to be a family together. So when people come into our family, we want you to feel at home amongst us. Um, so if you have any questions, then please feel free to ask us. We would love to make you feel as much at home as we possibly can. Uh, and what we're going to do now is we're going to spend a bit of time studying a bit of the Bible together um, over the last well, few years, really, on and off. We've been walk working through the book of Exodus, uh, and we're coming into land towards the end of the book now. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry. The words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me in a moment or two. And the book of Exodus tells this incredible story. It's perhaps the most, or one of the most vivid and dramatic stories, uh, not only in the Bible, but I think one of the most dramatic stories that you will ever hear. Um, and that's why it's been made into numerous movies, and even uh, lots of books and movies that you wouldn't realize, they're not explicitly about Exodus, but they kind of mirror the Exodus story. One of a group of people who were in slavery, the Israelites who were in slavery in Egypt with an oppressive king, Pharaoh, who had them under his hand, under his grip, was treating them as slaves in some horrible conditions. And the book of Exodus tells a story of how God rescues them. And he uses Moses in particular to help lead the people of God out of Israel through the Red Sea and then towards the promised land. And in the second half of the book, you find God beginning to give them some instructions of how he wants them to live as a people. And in particular, the section we're going to be in today, we're going to actually cover four chapters. We're not going to read them all because we don't have time. But four chapters from chapter 26 to 30, where the book lays out some, some very practical, detailed instructions of what their, what their worship space should look like how the, the tabernacle, the temple that they're to build, uh, how that should work, how that should function, how their sacrifices should take place, which some of it might sound a bit peculiar to you, but we're going to try and explain it as we go through. And what we're going to try and do this morning is we're going to try and we're going to try and solve a problem, like a, like a math equation, but not math because I can't. I'm rubbish at numbers, so if you ever have any homework, don't give it to me. When the kids come to me with math homework, I'm like, talk to mum, because that's not going to, I'm not going to help you. I'm going to help you to fail when it comes to numbers, so here we go. What we're going to do is we're going to look at a problem of how can, how can sinful humanity, us, interact, be with a holy God? Sinful humanity, holy God, how do those things come together? How does that work? That's the problem that we're going to try and 
solve this morning, or at least look at the solution. I won't be solving it at all. So what we're going to do is we're going to read a few verses, and then I'm going to pray. So let me read these to you. This is from Exodus 28. So we're just going to read four verses, uh, and then we'll get into it together. So it says, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, so this is God speaking to Moses, Aaron's his brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful who I am, who whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that uh, you're a God who gives gifts to his people. We just read in that passage that you gave those men and women gifts of skill to make those garments. And I ask that for myself this morning, that you would give me a gift of skillful teaching to be able to help us to understand this bit of the Bible together. And we don't want to understand it just so we can be uh, receive some new knowledge or some new information. But God, our, our, our burning desire is when we gather as your people together, our desire is, is that we want to see you more and that we want to know you deep in our hearts because of the little that we know of you so far, we know that there's nothing better, there's nothing greater, there's nothing more wonderful, there's nothing that fulfills us and satisfies us and brings us joy, peace, hope, life, than coming and seeing you again. So we're, we're hungry this morning to see more of your love, your grace and your power. And we pray, Holy Spirit, you'd be at work in each of our hearts today to help us to hear what you have to say to us. We pray, let your word speak powerfully and shape us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A few weeks ago, uh, we were talking about uh, how God has chosen to tabernacle, to dwell with us, his people. That was the subject. If you were here a few weeks ago, don't worry. If you weren't, but that was what we were looking at, this idea that God has come to tabernacle, which means to dwell, to be amongst his people. That's the wonderful thing about being a Christian, that it's not about a distant God over there that we have to somehow try and reach, but it's a God who's here, a God who's with us, Emmanuel, God with us. 
But as I said at the start, there's a problem that we still that has to be solved. Of how do we, how does that work? How do we get to be with God? How can we solve that problem? How does that work for us? Because what we were looking at last time is these two verses from Exodus 25, where it says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I'll show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture. So God's house in those verses is described on one hand as a, as a tabernacle, which is about God's imminence, God's ability, his desire to be with us, to dwell with us. God's chosen to tabernacle with us. So the house of God that they were to build was a tabernacle, but it was also a sanctuary, which speaks of God's transcendence, his holiness, his otherness, his majesty, his wonder, that God's a holy, holy God. So this house that God instructs them to build is both a tabernacle, God with us, but it's a sanctuary where a holy God comes to have his throne room, the place where he leads and rules over all of his kingdom. And the question is, well, how do we approach into this sanctuary, into God's holiness. And it's not particularly a very popular thing to talk about if you're a Christian, because we much prefer to talk about God as a God of love. And he is, you know. That's how the Bible describes him. God is love. But actually, you could argue, perhaps equally or even more so, that the central truth about God is that he's holy, he's a holy God, that's who he is. And if you know anything about humanity and if you know anything about yourself, you know perhaps the central truth or one of the main truths about us is that we're sinful. It's the common denominator which links us all together in this room is that we all fail, don't we? There's no one here is perfect. No one. You could go out into the park, you go out into this city and try and find someone who's perfect. Perfect, and you won't. We're all sinful. We all make mistakes. Let alone God's standards, even our own standards of living, how we would want to live. We let ourselves down. We're all sinful. And God's holy, how do those two things interact? So to help us to understand this, what we need is we start from a passage from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, where it's perhaps the main, the best picture in the Bible of God's holiness, where it tries to describe his holiness. Because this idea of being holy is about being not just kind of morally perfect, but somehow set apart, somehow different. That there's an, an otherness to God, that he's just other from us. He's just different from us. He's, in many ways, all the things that we are 
not. Even though that we're men and women are made in the image of God, yet at the same time, although we're made in this image, we're this broken, tainted image. So much of what God is like is completely other and different from us. And Isaiah 6 begins to give us a picture of that. So it says here, in the year that King Uzziah died, the thing that you learn from that is that King Uzziah, the most powerful man, at least in their world at that time, he's dead. But guess who doesn't die? God. That's how the main, perhaps the first way in how God is completely different from us is that we die, don't we? Again, another common denominator, something that links us all together, one day we're all going to die. See, what I thought to do is I'd get everyone in here today and I'd just share some happy thoughts with you all. You know, some nice thoughts. You can write them on post-it note and you can put it on your fridge. I'm going to die one day. There we go. And it's, we're all the same, but it's true. That's how God is wonderfully, wonderfully different from us, is that he's eternal. And we're frail and weak. And he's not. He's completely other from us. Next, it says he died. King Uzziah died, and I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Again, that's where God is. He's ruling. With all power and all of his sovereignty, he's on a throne, and he's sitting down. Think about that. God's rule, he's in command. He's kind of the CEO of everything that's happening in all of the universe, and yet he's sitting down. When I'm given any kind of responsibility, I, 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 I normally stand up with a sense of kind of raw panic in my eyes, like, oh my word, I've got to make this happen? Have you ever had that feeling when suddenly your boss comes in and gives you a responsibility that you're not used to, something that's new? So this isn't part of my job description. I don't know how to manage this. And you panic and you think, oh, how am I going to make this happen? Well, the way that God is in control is with complete peace. He's seated. He's other from us. He's different from us. Unlike us, his control is perfect. He's in complete control. And then it says next that he's high and lifted up. There's something about the, way, the language the Bible uses to describe his kind of height, the fact that he's lifted up, is supposed to bring to our mind something of his magnificence. You know, if you've ever been out, if you've ever gone to hike up a mountain, now I know in the Netherlands that's not gonna happen. You might hike up you know, a slope of a bridge or something. But if you've ever been to a country where there are hills, mountains, and you're at the foot of the mountain and you look up, and there's something of it's just raw power of the might of that massive force in front of you, and it makes you feel very small, very weak. It's a huge thing in front of us, and God's the same. And so often that's the, the language the Bible uses is even to talk about you know, the mountain of the Lord, this God who appears to people, he appears to Moses on a mountain, a God who rides above the clouds, 
there's a sense of his magnificence, his wonder, his might. He's other from us, he's different from us. And it says the train of his robe filled the temple. There's a kind of an extravagance, a resplendence, a just a beauty of who God is. Begin to see this picture of how the Bible is trying to describe the holiness of God. It's like something you just can't quite comprehend because it's just wonderful, it's majestic, it's so different from us. If we move on to the next slide, it says, above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. That's the language, that's, that's what's happening around the throne of God. Not just in Isaiah, but if you read in Revelation, they're still singing the same song. Holy, holy, holy. It repeats it three times, because it's underlined. There's nothing as pure and holy as God. There's nothing as magnificent and powerful. Nothing has the same might and wonder as God. That's what this passage is trying to get into our hearts. He's just so different from us. It says in Revelation 4 that they never cease to sing this song. Just for eternity before the throne. They're singing this song of God's holiness, of his power and his majesty. That's our destiny. That's what God's has insight for you if you're a believer in him. And it might sound a bit, well, I'm just gonna spend my life singing this song. No, you'll, you'll spend your life being completely contented. Doing, because what is happening here is they're doing the thing that they're made for. <laughs> they're worshiping the king of all heaven and all earth. And when you do that, it's just pure, joy and delight and happiness to do the thing that we're ultimately made for forever. Because God's a holy God. And it says here, even the seraphim, they, they cover their eyes. Because they, they can't look at God. His holiness is just so kind of bright and powerful that they can't even look at God. And then in the next few verses, it flips on to Isaiah, this prophet, his response. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. What he's suddenly aware of is he's seeing this vision of the throne of God and God's holiness. He's suddenly aware of his, of his uncleanness, of his lack of purity. He's aware of God's otherness, God's holiness, God's difference, and he's aware of his failings. He says, woe is me. He can't look at God. He can't even... And that's what happens in the Bible. When you glimpse something of God's majesty and power, you suddenly realize that God's holiness and our sinfulness can't interact. Actually, there's several stories in the Bible of where 
people encounter God's holiness and they're not properly prepared and they die. They die. That might shock you. Why would God do that? But he's a holy God and our sin and his holiness just don't mix. But wonderfully, as we said, he's also a God of love. So he's provided a way that they can mix, which is what we're going to try and understand this morning. But I guess your objection might be if you're here and maybe you've got some cynical thoughts and doubts in your head, maybe you just, you're not a Christian, you're not a believer in Jesus, you think this is all hocus pocus or just some nice stories, but nothing that's really real. You might think this is just a religious problem. That these are two of perhaps the most kind of religious sounding words, holiness and sin. Like, what's more religious than that? Holiness and sin. And you might think, well, they don't mean anything. They're just words that Christians use, that preachers use, to make people feel bad. That might be what you're thinking. That this, that I, what I'm trying to do is just make you feel guilty by just using some words to kind of somehow force some condemnation down your throat. Holiness and sin. We could just keep repeating it over and over again. And you might think this is just ancient language, words from thousands of years ago that are trying to describe an unreal phenomena. That these words are just, they're just, they're just they're meaningless. Because God isn't real. And if he is real, he's not like that. And I'm, and, and I'm not as bad as you say I am. How could you say such a thing? You might find even the words I'm saying offensive to you. But even though we might think these words are just unreal and make-believe and just religious Bible-bashing language, but yet all the time, all of us, whether you follow Jesus or not, all the time we treat things as holy, as sacred things. All the time, all around you, there are things that you treat as holy or as sacred. Things that you value, that are untouchable things. So in, in society as a whole, you know, in this city that we live in, there be certain values that are held that are sacred. Something like uh, equality or individual freedoms. You can't, if you break those things, woe betide you. If, if you somehow break this kind of bond of equality, if you interfere with someone's individual freedoms, that is, to the world around us, that is the original sin. How could you dare to do that? Because those values are, are, to our society are holy, they're, they're sacred things that they become so important that they're untouchable, that you can't break those things. Or even on a, on a personal level, there are some things to you, which are probably different for all of us, but some things that are just sacred. It might be for you, it's something like your peace. You just want to get home at the end of the day, and you just want to do the things that you want to do, 
And you don't want any distractions. You know, when your mum tries to call because she wants to catch up, ignore, because she's interrupting your peace. You've had a busy day, you need to relax. Maybe your kids come in and they want to play a game with you or do some drawing with you. Oh, not now, not later, later. Leave dad alone. Because it's your peace time. <laughs> I must have my rest. I must have my peace. And if anything breaks that, then they'll face your wrath because that thing's become holy to you. It might be your, your health, your, your body, your physical condition that you spend your whole life eating the right things, doing the right exercise. You've got a very detailed regime that manages of your life of the things that you can eat, the things you can't eat, when you can eat them, when you can't eat them, the sort of exercise, the amount of steps you've walked each day, the amount of kilometers you've cycled. And if you're not hitting those standards, you feel almost guilty because something about your body has become sacred to you. It's become holy to you. And when you start breaking the vows that you've made to yourself, you feel guilty because you're infringing on your own holiness. Maybe it's your possessions. You have some kind of prized possessions. You know, you drop your new iPhone and you smash the screen. And that kind of deep sense of pain in your gut, like, oh. Or even worse, if someone else breaks it, and their sense of anger and bitterness that you feel. I'm not joking, some of you feel like that when your possessions are broken because they've become holy, sacred to you. Because there's, um, and the thing is, it, it may be difficult for you to discern what is kind of sacred and what is holy to you. But I think a good way to figure it out is, is what really offends you, what really shocks you. It's funny, if you go to the Rijksmuseum, there's lots of uh, religious art there. And when you look at the paintings, when they try and draw or paint the divine, whichever divine they might believe in, somehow they never are quite able to nail it. You know, if you ever see a painting of Jesus, he's always got that kind of, I mean, one thing, he always looks European and not Middle Eastern, which is a bit of a problem, but he's also always got that kind of face on, of they're trying to make him look peaceful and contented, but he just looks a bit bored, you know. <laughs> like, oh, come on, guys. You know, pull yourself together. Just looks a bit kind of dull. They can't ever quite really capture the divine. But the way that they show that this is divine, that this is holiness, is by how they paint the people's reactions, the people that the divine is appearing to. And often you'll see that kind of sense of shock or awe or just fear or terror is how they try and paint them, how they try and draw them. They try and show their, their offense or their shock. And that's the best way for you to figure out what's become holy in your life is if, if you lost it, how would you feel? You know, what offends you? What scares you? What terrifies you so much? Or if something did, somebody did something or said something to you, what would like, oh, 
make you reel back in shock. Maybe that thing has become holy to you. We all have things that we treat as sacred, as holy. And at the same time, we're all aware of sin. And that might be the most repulsive of religious words. But yet, we're all aware of sin. We are. Because we see things in the world around us, and we see right and wrong, good and bad. We see evil. You don't have to spend too much time watching the news or browsing your social media feed before you come across a few stories and you think, that is evil. I mean, that's just so hideously wrong. And you know, we might have become desensitized to it that we just flip through these stories and they don't really mean anything to us anymore, but every now and again, there's something even just more repulsive that just grabs your attention. You think, that, that is just, how has that been allowed to happen? That's so hideously wrong. That, that must be sin, that, because that's so bad. How could you call it anything else other than sin? And you might think, well, we don't need God to solve that. We just, we just eliminate it. I'll spend my life, I'll be devoted to getting rid of that problem because it's so evil. And if society just does, if we just eliminate the bad things, then we don't need God. That's how our society functions. We don't need God. We're in control. Just those evil things that happen, let's just get rid of them. We'll just progress beyond that. We'll slowly get rid of all the evil as we go along and then we'll fix the world and everyone will be happy but yet, sadly, that doesn't work. I was reading a book recently, a fascinating book. If you've got questions about God, it's called If God, Then What? And it's a wonderful book to help answer some of your questions. And he tries to describe this problem of good and evil. He says, imagine if I'm trying to rid the world of suffering. I decide to wipe out the very worst people in history, Hitler, Pol Pot, Mao, Stalin, whoever. That would mean, if I got rid of those people, that would mean the worst people left in the world were kind of the next tier of evil. You know, the serial killers and the rapists. So I chuck them out next. Get rid of that tier of evil. And in, in a world without those people, the most evil people on earth might be the thieves the drink drivers, the swindlers, the cheats, the liars, adulterers. So I wipe them out too. The next tier of evil is gone. But before long, I'll be forced to discover the shocking reality. If I keep eliminating all the evil, I'll be forced to discover the shocking reality that I am now the worst person in the world. Because <laughs> the world still isn't rid of suffering because I cause so much suffering myself. I bully, I manipulate, I drive too fast, I hurt people, I say bad things, I think worse things. In that world, I am the byword for evil, a pop culture reference point for all-consuming villainy. In that world, I am Hitler. That's aggressive, harsh language, but that's the reality. If you just live to eliminate all suffering, 
sooner or later, you have to, if you try and get rid of all the evil, sooner or later, you'll have to confront the evil here. And you have to confront the evil here and a holy God. And you have to say, well, that equation, it doesn't add up. That doesn't work. The Russian writer who, I won't be able to pronounce his name properly, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, said, I made him sound German, but he's actually Russian, sorry. He said, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Because we like to draw lines of that's evil, that's good. You know, the kind of the Lord of the Rings universe, the Harry Potter world, well, those, those wizards are bad and those ones are good. But then we realize it's, it's that line isn't over there, it's here. It's here. And sin then isn't just a religious problem. It's my problem. It's your problem. And what happens when those two worlds collide? Those sacred holy things and those sinful things. What happens when they collide? And you might see it. You might have had those experiences in your life when maybe, maybe something has been... Have you ever had anything stolen from your home? Or maybe someone's nicked your bike. If you live in Amsterdam, you've almost definitely had a bike nicked at some point. And you get that sense of just violation that comes in your heart. And yet you try and reason with yourself. It's almost just a, it's just a bike. It's just, it's just a possession. You know, I can buy a new one. Insurance will cover it. But you feel violated, don't you? When someone takes something that belongs to you, it's, it's horrible. It's a really distasteful feeling. It's because something sacred, something holy and sin have collided. It sets something off within you. When those two things collide, it's a horrible feeling. That's why so often we struggle with feelings of shame. Feelings of guilt. Because somewhere in our heart, those two things have collided. Sin and holiness. And we're confronted with our brokenness and our failings, our weaknesses. And shame comes because we're not living up to the standard. Whoever's standard it is. For it's my standard, society's standards, God's standards. Shame comes because I feel, oh, I'm just not enough. I'm just not good enough. This problem is, is a very real problem. And ultimately, a writer called Simone Weil said, all sins are attempts to fill voids. They're trying to fill something within you. All sin, in essence, really is just, it's just a disbelieving God. You're just not trusting God. It's this kind of 
God-shaped hole within you that you try and fill with all sorts of other things. And it fails. Can't do it. You'll fall short. But, as we know, God hasn't left us in our sin because his desire has always been, always been right from the very start of the Bible. You go into the story of the Garden of Eden and you read that God's desire is to be with his people. You read about the tabernacle, the temple in Exodus, and God's desire is to be with his people. And that's still true today. His desire is to be with his people. That's why they made the tabernacle. And it might just seem like a, we've talked about the religious problem. It might just sound, the tabernacle can sound like a religious solution. In all these garments, all these things that they have to wear, like the details of how they have to construct the building. You know, why is that? A few weeks ago, um, me and Joe and one of our daughters was, I, we weren't doing this because we were English, but it was a very quintessentially English thing to do, that we watched the state opening of Parliament. Just because, literally, we were just having lunch and we turned the TV on and there it was. If you've ever watched this, I've watched the state opening of the Dutch Parliament as well, and that's grand. But us Brits, we take it to another level. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I mean, don't watch it because it's really quite bizarre. But when the Queen arrives at the Houses of Parliament in England, in London, to open the next stage of Parliament, there's so much pomp and ceremony, and she arrives in this golden chariot, you know, ridden by horses that are probably golden horses. You know, she's wearing all the garments, her robe, her crown. And it's a whole, I could go into details because the ceremony lasts quite a long time and there's lots of minute, bizarre, antiquated things that happen. But as, as you're watching it, they explain what's going on. And so much of it is actually, there's a lot of meaning behind it. There are reasons that they do those things, that they look bizarre and they look weird, but it's trying to make a point about, in the English society, the role of the monarch and the role of the people. It's trying to make a point of how that works, which I won't go on to explain now. But when you read these passages in Exodus, they seem bizarre. You know, the instructions of his ethod and his robe and he gives instructions of his, of, of, his, of, his, of his underwear, basically. What the priest should wear under their clothes. Quite detailed instructions. I think we've got a picture. Oh, here we go. So you might not be able to see it very well, but this is the, uh, an artist's impression of what the instructions in Exodus of what the high priest was to wear. This is the tabernacle here. I can send you this if you want to look at it in more detail because you won't be able to read all of this here. But it's a very detailed instructions of what he should wear. And there's so much meaning here of, of why. Of why. The, the lavishness, the color, the detail, the kind of the brightness of this high priest's outfit. It's there to show that he's regarded as appropriate, as kind of proper, as he's, he's able He's honored to perform the duties that he's about to perform, to go in and do the sacrifices that are going to take place. And I can't go into all details, but there's a couple of things that happen. In verse 12 of chapter 28, you read that he, he's up here, you can see he's got two, oh, if we go back to that picture, he's got two kind of 
stones on his shoulders. And then he's got, in verse 30, it describes these 12 jewels he wears on his chest as he goes in. And these aren't just, they're not just a bit of bling to kind of make him shine in the TV lights. These stones, they represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So it means as the priest goes in, he's overlaid onto his heart. He's carrying the, the people of God with him. So he can go and represent them before a holy God. So he can carry them right on his very heart into the presence of God. They're literally overlaid on his heart. And there's so much other rich symbolism that's happening here. But in what you read in, in Exodus and in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, it's, it's only ever symbolic. It's only ever a symbol. It's only ever a symbol. Because this temple, this ceremonial system that they built, it's, like a, it's an, an ideal, but there's something about it that doesn't quite have the same reality as it should do. So even Aaron, who would have worn this outfit on his turban up here, there would have been something on the top that would have said, holy. It would have said, holy to the Lord. So that as he walked into the, the holy of holies, the very presence of God, he performed these sacrifices so he could be holy to the Lord to seek forgiveness for the people. Aaron would have worn this outfit, but yet as we go on and read the story, Aaron's an idiot. <laughs> he does some really stupid things. He shouldn't be wearing a turban with holy to the Lord. He should be wearing a big hat that says dunce and he should go and sit in the corner. Because he blows it. He makes some big mistakes. We're going to read about that in a few weeks' time. But he's not perfect. And this system they built was only ever a temporary thing. And each year, the high priest had to go into the Holy of Holies and make the same sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people so that they could, God could dwell with them each year. And only he could go in. The rest of the people couldn't go there. No one else could go and see what Isaiah saw. They weren't allowed to, because this system is imperfect. But when you read on in the Bible, you find, wonderfully, we have a true, final day of atonement. When Christ, the book of Hebrews describes him as the perfect high priest, that he lived this completely spotless, pure life, that he could stand before God and he really was holy to the Lord. And he didn't just go in as the high priest, he went in as the sacrifice. He went as the Lamb of God to represent all of our sin all of our defilement, all of our guilt and shame. He took upon himself so he could bear the wrath of God and pay the ultimate penalty for us. It says in Hebrews chapter nine, for Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which means not into this tabernacle, 
or the temple, which are copies of the true things. This tabernacle was supposed to be like a, a copy, a representation of the very throne room of God, which Isaiah sees in Isaiah 6. But it says that Jesus actually went there into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. In the same way that high priest walked in with those jewels overlaid on his heart, that Jesus has gone and with us overlaid on his heart so that we might walk free, so that we might be loved and accepted to solve that problem of holiness and sin, that we can now come and enter, be before a holy God. It says in Revelation 1, he's freed us from our sins by his blood. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies washed with pure water. That scene that we started with in Isaiah chapter six, where even the seraphim, even Isaiah, they couldn't even look at God. Isaiah just say, woe is me, because he was just suddenly aware of all of his impurity, his uncleanness in the throne room of God. You get to enter now with confidence because you've been made holy. It doesn't mean that you're now free of sin. We still make mistakes, we still fail. But Christ now is our holiness. He's our perfection. And he's there on our behalf. And each of us can say, oh, Christ in me. I have this wonderful union with Christ now. That now the Father looks on me and he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. That we can come before God, that you can pray, that you can come here and worship, that you can open your Bible tomorrow morning, and you can do it with total liberty and freedom, because you can enter with confidence. You don't have to come and, and, and do any kind of sacrificial ritual. You don't even have to come and ask for forgiveness before you pray. That's not how Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Just asking for forgiveness for our sins is part of the Lord's Prayer, but it's not the first thing. The first thing is coming and saying, our Father. We can come to our Father, to a holy, holy, holy God, and we can come and know him and have relationship with him that problem of our sin and his holiness has been solved by Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we just want to, we could, we could just talk all morning and just delight.
just the richness, the wonder of what you've done for us. That even now we can pray to our Father, that we can talk to our Dad, and we can know that we're adopted as your children, we can receive your affection, your acceptance, your forgiveness, your love. And there's nothing that we've done that's earned it at all. But Jesus was our final sacrifice, the Lamb of God who bore the sins of the world. Jesus was our great high priest who walked into the presence of God perfectly holy and pure to make a way for us. And we just want to come now and just come in and, and do what we're now able to do, to enter your presence and sing and join with the angels who never cease in singing praise of the holy, holy God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.